morning, everyone, and happy new year. Uh, just before we do turn to God's word, I would actually like to pray for a family from Windsor who leave us this week for a couple of years, uh, Colin and Elaine Hughes, and their daughter Maisie head to Bangalore in India on Saturday on a two-year work assignment. Matthew, their son, he just started uh, Manchester University in September, and so he will be continuing his studies there. And so uh, we want to pray for them as a family on this, their, their last Sunday with us as they face major change and embark on a new adventure. So I'm going to ask uh, Colin and Lena Matthew just to stand. I think Maisie's out in transit, isn't she? But could, could you stand uh, just for a moment and let me lead us uh, in prayer for you as a family? Let's pray together for this family. Father, thank you uh, for this family and for their involvement at Windsor during the past almost two years now. And now we commit Colin and Elaine and Maisie to you as they journey to Bangalore this week, where they will live and, and work in a different environment and meet many, many new people. God, I pray for them as they travel, as they settle in, as they readjust, as they come to terms with numerous new sights and sounds. I pray for Maisie's education during this next two years. I pray that she will make new and good friends really quickly. And God, I also commit Matthew to you as he returns to Manchester on Saturday. May this whole family know your peace and presence in the weeks and the months that lie ahead. May they be assured of our thoughts and prayers. And may they know the care and the support of family and friends. God, I pray your blessing upon them. Go before them and with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. World changer. On the 22nd of May last year, 2013, on a busy street in Woolwich, southeast London, a young British soldier was butchered to death in broad daylight. It, it shocked the community, it shocked the city, it shocked a nation. Drummer Lee Rigby was murdered by two Islamic extremists. And at the scene, someone using their mobile phone recorded one of the killers confessing his crime, but justifying it by quoting the Bible or referring to a biblical principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The, the video went viral. This week, 1,195 people were named in the Queen's New Year's Honours List 2014. Included and each receiving MBEs were this couple, Margaret and Barry Mizzen, the parents of Jimmy Mizzen, who was murdered in an indiscriminate act of hatred and violence on the day after his 16th birthday in 2008, 200 yards from his house as he queued up in a bakery shop. And the reason that they were honored this week is because of their reaction to that horrific event. Their Christian faith enabled them to cope with their loss. And instead of allowing anger and vengeance to consume them, they set up the Jimmy Mizzen Foundation in memory of their son. And they now spend their time speaking to young people in schools and in prisons 
about managing anger without resorting to violence. And they also run the good or the cafe of good hope. They have seven other children. And uh, when asked recently, is the whole family in agreement? Is everyone together in this foundation of le- or this legacy of hope and peace? Margaret replied, yes, absolutely. If we had gone down the route of being angry and vengeful, we feel it would have had a terrible impact on the rest of our children. The day Jimmy died, I promised him two things. One, I would keep his name alive. Two, I would dedicate my life to working for peace. Two very different stories, but both related to the next section in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to read together in a moment. And so if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. That's page 970 in the Red Pew Bibles. For about three months now, we have been reading our way through this world-changing speech delivered by the greatest world-changer who ever lived to a community of potential world-changers. In other words, us, the called, the blessed, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. That, that's who we are according to Jesus. And therefore, we are potential world-changers. And today we come to what some have described as the highest point of this sermon, Matthew 5, 38 to 48. So please, let's stand and read these thought-provoking and somewhat unnerving words. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. John... uh, John Stott described this section of Jesus' sermon as the most admired and the most resented. And you can see why. Because they are truly amazing words, yet incredibly unsettling. 
because they offer or they suggest a way of life that is profoundly commendable and inspirational, and yet it's an attitude of heart, it's a mode of thinking that seems elusive and virtually impossible. Even that last line, never mind everything that that has gone before, but even that last line sounds bizarre and even unattainable. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you react to that? I mean, if verses 38 to 47 are extremely challenging, surely that final comment from Jesus, verse 48, takes us into a whole other stratosphere, out of reach. In fact, you could almost argue this lets us off the hook. Because if perfection is the standard, then every single one of us is beat before we start. And therefore, we we don't need to take this that seriously. None of us can be perfect as we understand perfect this side of heaven, this side of eternity. And so living like this now in our world with regard to to our enemies and those who hit us a slap or sue us, that's simply an ideal. It's it's not a genuine possibility. It's, It's not a realistic expectation of followers of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. And just to add to the intensity of these words, this closing comment of chapter 5 doesn't just relate to verses 38 to 47. It follows everything that Jesus has been saying and teaching since verse 21. And so it applies to anger. And it applies to lust. And it applies to the trustworthiness of your word. As well as to retaliation and to loving our enemies. So verse 48, be perfect therefore in all of these areas. Anger, lust, trustworthiness of your word, retaliation, loving your enemy. Be perfect therefore in all of these areas as your heavenly father is perfect. It sounds amazing. I mean, wouldn't it be great if some people could live like this? But the reality is they can't. It's beyond us. And so we can all breathe a huge sigh of relief. Or can we? Well, I'm not so sure. Because it seems that Jesus did teach his disciples to live exactly like this. He didn't play games. Jesus didn't create unrealistic ideals that were intended to frustrate and tease. Jesus did mean what he said and said what he meant. Otherwise, it's all rather pointless engaging with any of his words. And so we need to dig a little deeper, I feel. We need to come to terms with with what this phrase in verse 48 means because unless we do, we may search for wriggle room. We may not fully reflect on the impact and the implications of the verses that have gone before if we kind of 
don't take this one seriously that comes at the end of this particular section of teaching. As I understand it, what this verse is about, it's about living as we were intended to live. It's about being the kind of people that we were created to be. This is about being changed from the inside out to reflect the characteristics of the kingdom to which we now belong. This is about growth. It's about a process of growth. This is about heart transformation. This is about becoming more and more like Jesus. And so what we're talking about here is is not sinless perfection, which is impossible, but what we are talking about here is Christian maturity. This is about allowing God who has started something in us to bring it to completion, to bring it to perfection, if you like. As we seek to live out our identity as the called, as the blessed, as the salt, as the light. This is the direction we're heading. This is the journey we're on. We can live like this. We should live like this. And so Jesus urges his kingdom dwellers to grasp what is going on in their lives and to actually go for it. Go for it. Be different. Be countercultural. Be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. I, I love the way the message captures this verse because I, I think it really, it, it really kind of grounds it for me. Helps me get my head around a little bit. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it. In a word, this is verse 48 in the message. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Let live out your God-created identity. Love this line. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. See, if you hear nothing else this morning, grab that last sentence, write that last sentence down, stick that last sentence up somewhere that you see it time and time again. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives towards you. And so with that in mind, that we can do this, that we must do this, let's consider these most admired and most resented words of Jesus from verses 38 now to 47. It kind of breaks down into uh, two parts, and they begin in familiar terms. Have Have a look at verse 30 at the beginning of it. You have heard that it was said. So Jesus reminds the people what they already know. You've you've heard this before. And in this first little section from verses 38 to 42, he refers to the principle of an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, which you find in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. I don't have time to look at each of those, but they were rules under the civil code that dealt with a need to punish and a limitation on punishment, i.e. that the penalty shouldn't exceed the crime. Now, those Old Testament laws were given so that those in authority, the magistrates, the judges that were in Israel, it was so that they could administer justice and they could stop people from taking the law into their own hands. 
An eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth was not a warrant. It was not a mandate for personal vengeance. It was actually to help those in positions of responsibility to deal fairly and adequately with civil disorder and dysfunction, which is why those two Islamic extremists totally abused the biblical quote and principle as they took matters into their own hands. Total abuse of it. Now, whenever Jesus then takes this even further, or rather, as we've been saying, he drives it deeper, he says, look at this, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, whenever Jesus does this, he wasn't, I've struggled with this this week, I'll be really honest in how I'm going to communicate this, because I realize I'm going to miss so much. But whenever Jesus says this, Jesus wasn't throwing out the importance of civil codes or the need for systems of administering justice within civic society. Those are still absolutely necessary within a fallen world. Otherwise, there will be chaos and meltdown. But Jesus is now speaking here directly, and this is the important bit. Jesus is now speaking directly to his followers. This is about individual responsibility for those who are the called, the blessed, the salt, and the light. The you have heard it said in verse 38 was plural. The you of verses 39 to 42 singular. And so Jesus is now speaking directly into the attitudes of kingdom dwellers. And how they, his disciples, personally relate to others. So Jesus is not doing away with civil codes and the need for those in authority to administer justice. But here, he's now speaking into our lives as followers of him. And this might seem obvious, but but again, I don't want to be misunderstood. Whenever Jesus says, Do not resist an evil person. That does not mean we should never protect ourselves or anyone else for that matter against physical violence or abuse. I've been so concerned that this could be misunderstood this morning, but that is not what Jesus is saying. To take these verses and insist that we should kind of lie back or stand back and take it or watch someone suffer physically because Jesus said, do not resist an evil person, is nonsense. And surely it's a serious distortion of this text and the teaching of Jesus. We should defend ourselves. We must protect others. But what we can't do, what we must never do, is then engage in some kind of tit-for-tat mindset. We can't seek revenge. We can't hit back. We can't and should never retaliate. In other words, we do not resist evil with evil. We don't and we can't go there. Never from the lips of Christians should we hear phrases, well, two can play at that game. Or revenge is a dish best served cold. We've got to be different. We're called to be different. And as Jesus develops this further, he he highlights a few scenarios where kingdom residents should and can live and behave differently, counterculturally. 
Now, lots and lots and lots and lots have been written and said about these situations that Jesus speaks about and, and what they exactly mean. And different people have slightly different takes on them. But let me attempt to take each in turn and suggest that Jesus is encouraging his followers to find a third way to respond. A third way to respond beyond violent resistance, beyond this tit-for-tat mindset, but also beyond passive acceptance, beyond the sit-back-and-simply-take-it option. So, first situation involves a slap on the right cheek. Now, in that culture and context, to be slapped on the right cheek was a massive insult. It meant that someone had actually hit you, and a lot of you know this, and some of you have actually spoke to me about this in the run-up to today. It meant someone had hit you with the back of their right hand. And therefore, it wasn't just the stinging pain that was the main issue. It was the absolute indignity of what had just happened to you. It's as if you'd been treated as next to nothing. So what do you do? What do you do in that situation? This was the context and the culture in which Jesus was speaking into. Someone slaps you the back of the hand across the right cheek with their right hand. Whoa. Anybody that was sleeping, that's them now, wide awake. Need a good slap, yeah. Uh, who said? <laughs> yeah, someone slapping. Uh, it, it meant that you were treated as if next to nothing. So, so what do you do? Well, according to Jesus, here's what you do. You turn the other cheek also. You don't hit back. Yeah, that's the natural reaction. You don't do that. But neither do you bow your head and submit You find a third way. You hold your head high. You expose the other side of your face. Because you know what? You have dignity. They can't take that away from you. And if they choose to strike you again, then shame on them. Shame on them. It's not easy. But it's good. It's the right thing to do. Find a third way beyond violent resistance, beyond passive acceptance. You're not nothing. You have dignity. The next situation involves a non-violent courtroom reaction that actually speaks volumes. It's, it's a tricky one for us to get our heads around for lots of reasons, and we've got to be careful of this. But again, as I understand it, If a poor person in that culture was sued for his garments, which was about all they could be sued for, the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy stepped in at a certain point and protected them from being left without a stitch to their name. And certainly the law insisted that they keep their last piece of clothing, or at least they insisted that their last piece of clothing was returned to them before nightfall so that they didn't freeze to death with nothing to cover them. 
And so Jesus speaks into this situation and he recommends that if you are unjustly sued, which again is the sense here, if you are unjustly sued for your next than the last garment, the shirt off your back, then do you know what you should do? Hand over your coat as well, says Jesus. In other words, strip naked and therefore force the person suing you to experience the shame of leaving you with nothing to keep you warm at night. It's a radical third way. It's definitely non-violent, but it's also non-passive. In the third scenario, I know some of you are going, I think you need to say more about that, David. Third scenario involves the extra mile. It was custom and it was legit by law for a Roman soldier to force someone to carry their kit or their backpack for a mile, but no further. No further. It's okay for a mile. No further. Otherwise, they had stepped over the mark. And so if a Roman soldier press gangs you into carrying his gear for a mile, don't stop there, says Jesus. Go another mile. Double the distance. Again, it's a third way. It's a non-violent reaction to a harsh situation, but it's also radically beyond passive acceptance because it brings shame and actually draws attention to the Roman soldier who's now stepped over the mark. But for you, go the extra mile. And in each of these situations, what Jesus is doing is he's revealing that his kingdom community should and can live differently. Yes, they don't retaliate. They don't seek revenge. They don't go on the offensive. They don't go on the counterattack. But neither do you live as a doormat. Neither do you just allow yourself to be walked over. You stand strong. You stand with dignity. Because you belong to a higher authority. You serve a greater God. And at times, what that actually means is you choose insults as you turn the other cheek. You choose injustice as you waive your rights. You choose inconvenience as you're prepared to go the extra mile. But you know what? It sets you apart. It reveals your God-given identity. Live generously. Live graciously towards others as God lives towards you. Now, how we practice and process what Jesus preached in our context and in our day-to-day lives is the challenge. But it is one that every single one of us need to embrace. Choose insults. Choose injustice. Choose inconvenience. How you live that out, how we live that out, is the ongoing challenge. In the final verse of this kind of short but dense section, Jesus then encourages generosity. Jesus actually says, listen, see when it comes to kingdom values, you've got to be open-handed. You've got to willingly respond to those in need. Now, Jesus doesn't specifically mention money, although that's often assumed. And it's certainly part of it. 
But it could also involve our time, our possessions, our hospitality, our gifts, and our abilities. But the point is this. In his new community of world changers, our inhabitants and dwellers who are unselfish, who are charitable, who are kind, and who are giving, be generous, says Jesus. Give to those who ask. We need to move on really, really quickly. Because in the last section of this chapter, in this part of the sermon, Jesus issues a final and a huge challenge to his disciples. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's actually, it's actually more than a challenge. It's a command. I tell you, says Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Whatever way you look at this, whether challenge or command, and I believe it's a command. It's a tough call. It's exceedingly difficult. It's, as one early church father said, it's the very highest summit of self-control. Think about that. The highest summit of self-control is to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, loving your neighbor's hard enough. But loving your enemy and praying for those who give you a hard time, it's unnatural. It's, it's supernatural, which is exactly the point. You see, Jesus exemplified this as he reflected the heart of God towards his enemies. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. See, Jesus loved and prayed for those who hated him and who wanted to see him dead. And he calls and he commands his followers to make similar choices. And love is a choice. It's an act of your will and mine. None of us feel like loving our enemy. None of us. But choosing to do it is possible because you follow Jesus. Choosing to do it is possible because his spirit lives in you and enables you to venture from the natural and cross over into the supernatural. I passionately believe that. God, I believe that. That is how I, what I believe this word teaches. With God, did we sing a song something about with Christ all things are possible? Didn't we? Do, do, do we believe that? Or are they just words? Can we love our enemies? If you do, it brings freedom and protects your heart from bitterness, protects your mind from negative and destructive thoughts. Naomi, who spoke last week, mentioned Nelson Mandela. After 27 years in prison, he left Robben Island with no bitterness. His attitude shocked the world. People couldn't figure this man out. Why aren't you bitter? He was asked time and time and time again on various interviews. One of the reasons he gave was the realization and the recognition that bitterness was only ever going to hurt himself. And on one occasion, he gave President Clinton this advice. If you hate, you give your enemy your heart and mind. Don't give your enemy those two things. Loving your enemy is a big ask. It is a big command. But you know something that not only reveals your heart, it protects your heart. 
And as I've said time and time again, above all else, guard your heart for it affects everything else you do. See, when you hold on to hatred and bitterness, it will wreck your heart. Long term, you will suffer the greatest. And ultimately, according to Jesus in Matthew 5, as we love and pray for our family, our, our enemies, it indicates that we are children of God. Mirroring the life and character of our Heavenly Father. In other words, when we do this, we share the family resemblance. And Jesus goes on to make or reinforce the point that God makes the sun to shine on the, or to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the unjust as well as the just. God pours out his blessing on all regardless. His love is not dependent on our attitude or behavior towards him. He is so passionately and unconditionally in love and loves the world. And in receiving that love, you and I are freed and enabled to love others, neighbor and enemy alike. So don't just love those who love you. It's not exactly difficult. That's not countercultural. Instead, or as well as, love your enemy. Overcome them if you like. Not by reflecting a similar attitude as they have. Or with having negative thoughts about them or destructive words towards them. Rather, overcome them, says Jesus, with love and prayer. It really is an upside down kingdom. But you know something? It is seriously world changing. Whenever you are confronted with an enemy, conquer him with love. So, how do you respond this morning? Well, rather than me say anything else, allow me to restate the last verse from the message. In a word, what I'm saying, I'm, I'm, this is to me, okay? Grow up, David. You're a kingdom subject. Start living like it. Live out your God-created identity. Do you know you're, you've been made in the image of God? Made in the image of God. Live generously and graciously towards others. Why? How? The same way God has done so towards you. It's a huge challenge. May God help us and may God bless people like Barry and Margaret Mizzen who are trying to flesh this out, who are trying to work for peace and who are trying to love against all odds. Let's uh, quickly sing as we close. But let's take a wee bit of time just to respond. Uh, this is a song. Chris was actually playing this last week, I think, during the offering. And uh, I think most of us know it. I love it. Don't think we sing it very often here. Lord, you have my heart, and I will search for yours. That's the kind of prayer for this morning. God, give me a heart like yours for others, including those who slap me, sue me, make me go the extra mile.
those who are my enemies. Give me a heart for them, God, like yours. Let's stand together as we sing.